0: Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast presented by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. As you know, on this podcast, we discuss issues of interest to the local, national, and international endurance communities. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the visits. Thanks for the likes on the Facebook page. Uh, Happy Easter to all of you out there. Happy start to the endurance season, if you will. Uh, There's uh, a lot more events kicking off over the course of the next couple of weeks. Uh, The cycling, pro cycling season has started. Uh, As big a fan as I am of pro triathlon, I'm actually a bigger fan of pro cycling and pro running. We're going to talk more about that later on. Um, But uh, the Tour of Flanders, which I think is the best race of the year, next weekend. Uh, it's also the second birthday of my twin sons. Uh, if you've been to our Facebook page, if you click liked on our Facebook page. Hopefully you have. If you've been seeing all the various things that we post on there, you've seen that the cover photo on the Facebook page is a picture of my son. So if you haven't checked that out, by all means do. And while you're there, like the page. Uh, today, episode nine is a catch up episode. I wanted to go back over some of the things and give you updates on some of the things that have happened with the various people. People, um, and the various topics that we've discussed uh, here on this podcast. Uh, the first update is a pretty simple one, uh, but it's an important one. Uh, you'll recall, of course, that our last couple of episodes uh, were interviews with Kyle Pease, with Brent Pease, and with Paul Link. And we were talking about walking with KPZ. We were talking about the Kyle Pease Foundation and all the really important work they do. Um, I mentioned before, and, and I've said this to several people over the course of the past couple of weeks, um, it, spreading the 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 enriching aspects of endurance sports to a wider array of people i think is only a positive thing it can only mean better things not only for the endurance community itself but for the world at large Um, speaking for myself i know that endurance sports are the most defining endeavor of my life Um, i'm a better person i'm a deeper thinker Um, i i met my wife because of endurance sports, I would literally be on a completely different track. I would have gone to a different college. I probably would have a different career entirely uh, if it weren't for my involvement in endurance sports. Um, and and I like to think the path I followed is, is a good path. Um, and, and knowing that there are more people out there who are going to have those opportunities, thanks to Brent and to Kyle and to other people like them, I think is a really good thing. Uh, But the update I wanted to give, as you will recall, there were 28 people that were signed up to complete the Uh, marathon and half marathon, the Publix marathon and half marathon here in Atlanta with the Kyle Pease Foundation. There was one DNS, one do not start, uh, but otherwise all 27 people who started the race finished the races. Uh, And so congratulations on an epic accomplishment by the Kyle Pease Foundation, uh, by Kyle Pease and Brent Pease individually, and of course to all the people who helped uh, the Kyle Pease athletes get across the finish line. Uh, Paul was one of those people. Um, uh, He helped an athlete get across Cross the finish line in the uh, in the the, the marathon, uh, but there were several other people who who volunteered their time and their fitness uh, for that cause, and so thanks to all of them. I know it was a big fundraising uh, uh, activity as well. I don't know exactly how much money they raised, but but I think it's great. Um, I also wanted to next give a give a, uh, an update from Stacy Perlis. Uh, you'll recall, of course, that Stacy Perlis is a project manager, a product manager over at um, Wahoo Fitness. In the time since we talked, the Element, which is the bike computer that uh, was her product, the one that she was spearheading, the one that uh, she talked so much about, all the incredible things that it could do, uh, that has now been released. And so if you were intrigued by the Element and her conversation of it, you can now purchase one. Um, or you might be able to find find a shop to let you demo one as well. Um, and so those are out by all means, check it out. Um, she also recently posted something on Facebook that I wanted to share as well. Um, she, You'll recall we, we had a conversation about the variances between different power meters and the variances between different kickers um, and about how often you need to calibrate your Wahoo kicker. Um, you'll recall that I told her that I always calibrate prior to every single workout, and then I even stop about a third of the way through the workout about the time the warm-up is done, and I recalibrate it again um, in order to make sure. Now... Granted, I'm a little bit obsessive-compulsive about my power numbers, um, but I did feel as if there sometimes was a change after those recalibrations. Um, Well, she posted up some stuff today, uh, or yesterday, on uh, on Facebook that I wanted to share, and I did try them today, as a matter of fact, during a two-hour ride that I did, so I'll tell you about that in a second. But anyway, so she wrote, quote, I recently had an ITL friend call me asking questions about variances between a kicker snap, which is the Wheelon model that's kind of like a CompuTrainer, and his power meter. I then went to the source, the head kicker engineer, and confirmed a few things and learned a few others, so I thought that I would share. Number one... All power meters are slightly different. If you see a variance of roughly 7% wattage, don't worry about this. It is expected, and Wahoo states that there is a range of variances. Uh, Side note, you'll recall that that when we talked to Stacy, she had mentioned this variance as well, and she actually pointed out, and I think it was a good point, uh, that, that how do you know that your power tap is not the wrong one? How do you know that your stages is not wrong and that your kicker is not the one that's measuring it right? Good point. Um, There can be variances between power meters, um, and so that's important to keep in mind too. Um, Number two, she wrote, this is back to her quote, to make sure your kicker slash kicker snap is as accurate as physically possible, follow these steps for the kicker Anytime you move the kicker, or if you are super, super intense, that would be me, open the Wahoo app and do a spin down. This could take up to one minute, but this will completely reset the electromagnet slash algorithms. Then close the Wahoo app and open TrainerRoad slash Zwift Zwift or whatever else and start your workout. Don't do a spin down with two apps open at the same time, as the kicker can get confused on which radio it's talking to. Also, the spin down in trainer road is okay, but it is not the wahoo algorithm. For most accurate, use the wahoo app. If you're on a kicker, no need to recalibrate mid-workout unless you're experiencing issues. Disclaimer she says, I only do a spin down like once a month with direct drive, it isn't as necessary. Um, so, this was something that stood out to me because cuz I did in fact do this today. I've never even opened the wahoo app until today. I've always just uh, sat on my kicker and and run it through trainer road. Um, and so I did the spin down through the Wahoo app and had no problems. Um, the wattage seemed to be correct. I didn't have a pedal base or a crank based uh, power meter that I was comparing it to, but based on my RPE and my 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 knowledge of self, um, I can tell you that the the power felt about right. Um, it was a very hard workout, unfortunately, but the power was was correct throughout. Uh, She also writes, kick or snap. This is the wheel-on one that's kind of like the, uh, the CompuTrainer. So this one is a bit tougher because of the pressure on the wheel. To ensure that you get the most, most accurate power readings, we suggest doing the following. Number one, set your wheel tension. Make it where the roller just touches your wheel, then do two full turns. Two, get on the snap and warm it up a few minutes. Three, open the Wahoo app and do the advanced spin down. You will see a time temperature offset. If the time is greater than 15 seconds, give the tension on your wheel a quarter turn and repeat the step. Um, once you hit that 10 to 15 second offset, uh, your power meter and wheel tension are near perfect. At this point, there's no need to re- recalibrate mid-workout. Um, that's not unlike, by the way, what I've always done on a CompuTrainer. Um, you get on it, you kind of spin it up, you calibrate it, then you ride it for a little while, you let it warm up, and then you recalibrate it again. Um, so so that, that, that's not really all that different at all. I think the big difference here is actually using the Wahoo app rather than using the, uh, the, 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 the trainer road spin-down protocol. Um, and then she finally said, number four, this is just another pro tip while plugged in the kickers still continue to draw power for energy conservation, i.e. your power bill. I recommend unplugging when it's not in use. Um, sorry for the long, super technical long post, but I wanted to share as much as I, a few questions on kicker snap, So I figured while I was at it, I'd give the kicker story also holler. She said, if you have any questions with your kickers, so don't forget to unplug them. They are so-called vampires. Um, Next, I want to talk a little bit about Will Kramer. Um, I wrote an email to Will this week, and I had told everybody when I was interviewing Will before that he's always super helpful, and he's willing to answer my questions, and, and he gives me a great deal of detail, and that's something that I appreciate. Um, as evidence of that... I wanted to share with you an email that I traded with Will this week. Um, I uh, wanted to do an experimental run yesterday, my first run since November, and I'll talk about that in just a minute. Uh, And, of course, when you're starting to think about running again, you need a new pair of running shoes. Uh, I'm made fun of by my wife a lot for my affinity for collecting running shoes. But um, I need a new pair of running shoes because I am going to start running again, hopefully sometime over the course of the next couple of weeks. Like I said, more about that in a minute. So I wrote to Will, and I said, Will, I really like the Fresh Foam... New Balance shoes, but really what's the difference between the 1080s and the Zantes and what about these Vasi, uh, uh shoes that I see from New Balance as well. Uh, I'm going to be getting a pair of special edition Dumbo Vazee Pace shoes when I go to the Disney uh, Dark Side 10K in three weeks. And so I wanted to know exactly what it was I'm going to be getting there. Um, and Will wrote me back and I'm going to just read his email here. And so you'll get a sense of the sort of detail um, and help that, that Will actually provides here. Hey George, he wrote. Thanks for the note. Hope all is well. This is a great question. Fresh Foam 1080 is New Balance's premium cushion, neutral support Fresh Foam option. It's built on a wider, straighter last than the Zante. It would be intended for someone looking for a softer, more protective ride. The Fresh Foam Zante is built for faster performance and would be intended for someone looking for a lighter, more responsive experience relative to the 1080. It's built on a more curved last, has a lower stack height and a 6mm drop versus the 8mm drop in the 1080. So basically, the 1080 would be your long run slash easy day shoe. The Zante would be your tempo run slash workout shoe. The Vongo, which is another fresh home option, by the way, the Vongo is a shoe designed to go up against the Nike Lunar Glide, Brooks, Brooks Ravenna, or Mizuno Inspire in the light stability category. The midsole is built with a medial wedge to provide some dynamic support for overpronation. There is no traditional medial post, but the midsole is wedged pretty significantly so that it sits higher underneath the medial arch. The original sample we saw of this shoe felt insane. The wedge was way too pronounced and felt like it immediately threw your foot into a supinated position just standing. The more recent sample I saw last week seemed to have eaten out the platform a good deal and feels much more wearable. The Vasee is sim- very similar to the Zante, but uses New Balance's RevLite midsole compound instead of fresh foam, so the VASE should feel a little firmer and more responsive than the Zante, which in turn would be a bit softer and more flexible. Vasee and Zante are built on essentially the same last. New Balance's performance, 6mm last, so the fit is about the same. Hope this helps. Holler if you have any additional questions. Best, Will Kramer. Now, it is, of course, no- worth noting that, that both Will and Stacy said that I should holler if I have more questions, but... Um, The important thing here is less about the differences between the New Balance shoes and more about uh, the detail that Will is willing to give me um, when I send him a simple question. Um, Again, I've said before, when somebody asks me what shoes they should be wearing, I send them to a running specialty store, and generally I send them specifically to Westride. Um, Will knows his stuff. Um, They know their stuff at the running specialty store. Um, And if you're looking for a new pair of shoes, that's where you should go. Um, The next thing is, as I said, I did actually run for the first time yesterday since November. I had gotten a good email from my physical therapist, Carrie Smith, who I'm trying to talk into coming on the podcast over the course of the next couple of weeks. Um, And she and I had gone back and forth a little bit about, okay, how exactly do I know when I'm ready to run again? What's it going to feel like? Stuff like that. Um, and, uh, And so yesterday I went and walked for five minutes, then ran for five minutes, then walked for two more minutes, then ran for five minutes, and then cooled down by walking three more minutes. Uh, In that 20 minutes or so, I ended up getting about two miles worth of movement forward. Um, And it went okay. Uh, It was a fairly successful test. I felt okay. Um, Unfortunately, it was a little bit stiff today such that I feel like maybe it's not uh, advisable for me to really start running regularly again just yet. Um, But here's the thing that I've really learned about extracorporeal shockwave therapy. It's that the recovery is not a straightforward process and this is something that's been a little bit frustrating for me. Uh, I kind of alluded to this a few weeks ago and I've said this to people in other places, um, but there are times and there are procedures that you do and when you do them, they're done You spend some time in a cast or in a boot or whatever it happens to be, and then you finish that up, you slowly rebuild your fitness, and you're back to normal. Um, That's really not the case here. Um, Right now, my recovery schedule says that I should be about 30 to 50% better than I was prior to the surgery, which, to be honest, I do feel like I'm about 30% to 50% better than I was prior to January 13th. But that's not 100% better, and that's not pain-free. I'm not expected to be able to run pain-free for six months. And so in other words, I can go ahead and start running now with a little bit of tightness and pain, and even though it bothers me, I can still continue to do it. Uh, and it will still continue to get better. To me, that seems so counterintuitive, or at least it seems contrary to everything that I've always done with injuries in the past. In the past, you run, and if it hurts, you don't run. You find something else to do um, if it's truly an injury because you don't want to make it worse. Whereas this one, if it hurts a little bit, eh, that might be okay because it's still in the process of healing and it's still making forward progress here. Uh, Remember one of the big things about extracorporeal shockwave therapy is that it was supposed to reignite a lot of the body's natural anti-inflammatory processes. And so those processes have been reignited and they will continue uh, over the course of the next little while here, um, even as I start to run again and even though I might be feeling some pain. And so it's just not very straightforward and it's been a little bit confusing. And to be honest, if I would have known how unstraightforward it was, I would have spent a lot more time talking to the doctors and the PAs, about the sort of support that I would get as a recovering from ESWT patient. Um, I talked a lot to the doctors that did it prior to it to try and get an idea of what it's all about. I've hardly talked to them at all in the recovery process, um, and that's frustrating for me. Um, I have been clear to run, like I'm saying. Um, I'm sort of trying to play it by ear um, and... and trading some some ideas with Carrie, my physical therapist, as well. Um, in three weeks, I'm supposed to do a 10K, the Dark Side 10K at Disney World, uh, so that I can get a, a TIE Fighter finisher medal, and so that I can I can get my special Vazi Pace Dumbo shoes. Um, I'm thinking right now I might be walking a significant portion of that, but I guess that we'll see. Now, on a similar note, um, I wanted to share something else, some other research that I did uh, related to this. Um, as you're probably aware, um, turmeric and bromelain are a couple of compounds that are fairly commonly used in the endurance community to fight pain and inflammation. Um, one thing about ESWT is that I'm not allowed to take NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. I'm not supposed to take any Advil. I'm not supposed to take any uh, any aspirin. I'm not supposed to use any ice, anything like that. The idea is that that because I have triggered the body's Natural anti-inflammatory response, you don't then want to dull that response by taking a whole bunch of anti-inflammatory drugs. It makes sense. Likewise, I'm not allowed to use ice for six months we're talking about here, not just for a couple of weeks. Uh, I'm not allowed to use any ice because that constricts uh, the veins and kind of squeezes on them and, and can can thereby kind of put things in hibernation. And in fact, you want things moving. You want um, the, the inflammation moving out, the circulation going. And so since I knew I couldn't take... Um, Since I knew I couldn't take Advil, um, and it was really, really bothering me a couple of weeks ago, uh, about eight weeks after the surgery, I started looking into whether I could take bromelain and turmeric in order to fight that off. And it took me a long time to actually figure out whether or not I could do it. Um, I found a 2012 study about bromelain and ESWT. Now, bromelain, by the way, it's an enzyme, and you find it in pineapple. Um, And so some of you might be familiar with that. Turmeric is that spice, that herb uh, that you actually have in, like, Indian food and stuff like that. Some of you might have had before. It's literally the same stuff. It's the orange that's in a pill. Um, But uh, but anyway, bromelain... um, And turmeric have both been demonstrated to have some anti-inflammatory and some pain-reducing, I probably should say, uh, properties. Um, Turmeric has actually been compared side-by-side in clinical tests to uh, NSAIDs, to uh, aspirin, and to... um, Advil to, to ibuprofen, and has shown to be every bit as effective in actually reducing inflammation. So I figured since I couldn't take aspirin and Advil, maybe I could take some turmeric or bromelain. So anyway, um, in looking that up, I looked up a 2012 study about bromelain and ESWT, and I found that that uh, there was a study where they took a whole host of people who had issues with plantar fasciitis or 4th Achilles tendonitis, they all had extracorporeal shockwave therapy, And then they gave one group a whole bunch of bromelain and again gave the control group no bromelain uh, and then checked back with them over the course of, of several months. It said that over the first few weeks, there was not a whole lot of difference. But by six months, the people who were taking bromelain Uh, had significantly higher healing levels than the people who were not taking bromelain. And they both had the same procedure. They both had the same procedure that I had, the extracorporeal shockwave therapy. So looking at that, I was like, all right, well, maybe I can take some bromelain and maybe I can take some turmeric as well. But what I had to try and figure out is how does bromelain work and how does turmeric work and is that, in fact, different from the way that Advil works, from the way that Motrin works, from the way that Aspirin works. And this was a harder question to answer than you might think. Every time that you search something like turmeric anti-inflammatory on Google, all you get is all the stuff about how great it is and how how it does, in fact, reduce inflammation just as well as Advil does. And that's not what I wanted. What I wanted was the mechanism inside the body that is actually affected by turmeric or bromelain um, and how that compares to the mechanism inside the body that's affected by non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So ultimately, this is what I found. I found that there are these um lipid structures inside your body called prostaglandins um they're literally located in every single muscle inside an animal uh, including of course human beings and they kind of act like hormones they're only kind of partially understood now there's a particular type of prostaglandins called cyclooxygenases and there are two and maybe three we're not sure but at least two types of cyclooxygenases there's what they call cox 1 and cox 2 cox for short cox for short cox 1 and cox 2 now When there is a great deal of inflammation, COX-1 and COX-2, particularly COX-2, seem to be present in much higher levels. And the way that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like Advil and Motrin work is by inhibiting the production of COX-1 and COX-2. Advil is sometimes preferable to aspirin because it only inhibits COX2 uh, and doesn't mess with COX1, and that's the reason why maybe your stomach won't get so upset uh, um, as opposed to using aspirin because aspirin actually inhibits both COX1 and COX2. Turmeric inhibits COX2. So, in other words, turmeric has the same effect inside the body that Advil does, and for that reason, I decided that. Turmeric is probably on the banned list as well, and I decided not to take any of it. Bromelain, on the other hand, does not influence the cyclooxygenases. It doesn't have anything to do with COX-1 and COX-2. Rather, bromelain, the enzyme that's inside a pineapple that you can take in pill form, which is what I've been doing now for the past couple of weeks, uh, increases circulation. So if anything, it's been a good thing because it's been causing the blood to flow more through those little tiny veins in my heel um, that are helping moving some of the inflammation and some of the, the broken down scar tissue out of that area and hopefully healing it more quickly um, like I said, it was actually it took a long time to find that information and so I definitely wanted to share it um, now I I want to talk a little bit more about inspiration. Of course, Kyle and and Brent and the Kyle Pease Foundation, all of their athletes are super inspiring. But um, being someone who is kind of injured right now, not kind of, who has been injured, who's recovering from injury right now, I've been searching around for inspiration. And I think the place we often find inspiration is in the professional sports world. Uh, And of course, we tend to find it particularly in the professional versions of the sports that we all do. And A brilliant piece of inspiration happened just yesterday, and I'm betting that most people missed it, and it's the reason why I wanted to mention it here right now. Um, Yesterday was the World Half Marathon Championships. They were held in Cardiff, Wales in the United Kingdom. Um, the defending champion was a 23 year old Kenan named Jeffrey Kamroor uh, it's K-A-M-W-O-R-O-R Kamroor. Um he's also been the world cross country champion and so he's clearly a brilliant and very strong runner um, he was the 10,000 meter silver medalist at the last world championship uh, and like I said he was a defending half marathon world champ the gold medalist in the last world champion 10,000 meters uh, was of course Mo Farah and Mo Farah was also in the race yesterday um, it was Built up as this huge showdown between Cam Rohrer and Mo Farah and a few other people as well. Everybody was looking forward to this fantastic race in Wales. And suddenly, just as the race started, Jeffrey Cam Roar fell down. If you've ever fallen down while running, particularly in a race when you're trying to run hard, it's more than just falling down and skinning your knees. It completely throws you off of your game. And it's very hard to get back up and start running again. Um, what's worse... Jeffrey Kamroor, when he fell down, he actually started getting trampled by all the people behind him because they didn't start the elite race separate from the local road race. And so there were literally thousands of people running this half marathon. They were all lined up on the starting line behind Jeffrey Kamroor, the defending world half marathon champion. And as he falls down, they all start running over the top of him. He was on the ground for seven seconds getting stepped on by everybody else, um, there was a a British journalist or a British color commentator a guy named Steve Cram, who's a former miler um, and, and was a great British runner back in the 18, 1980s and 1990s. Um, and he actually, right as he fell down, you know, started bemoaning the fact that, that, that Cam Roar had fallen down. He said, it's a shame for the race as well. You know, we build this up. People around the world really looking forward to this Cam Roar going against his teammate, Hiroki and Mo Farah. His only hope is that things don't go out too fast. Things did go out very fast. They went through the uh, the, the two-mile mark in nine minutes and six seconds. Uh, but Cam Roar got up after being on the ground, being stepped on by all sorts of people, uh, and started running again. And he had remade contact with the front pack within 80 seconds and somehow was back up to the front of the lead pack within about 90 seconds. Um, around the, the 8K mark, around the 5K mark, or 5-mile mark, he uh, he took the lead. Um, and then they ran uh, the 5K, the 5 kilometers between 10K and 15K at 13.41 Um, so not only did he get up, catch the pack, settle into a fast pace, but at the 10 K mark, when he took the lead, which by the way, they had just run the 10 K in about 28 flat, he then drops in a 1341 and that shredded the entire field, including Mo Farah, who is probably the greatest distance runner of of this generation. the last two miles came along, there was all sorts of rain and wind. He still ended up running 59 minutes and 10 seconds to take the win and to defend his title. Um after the race he said unfortunately I fell down and I said I will not give up I will go after the championship and I'm really happy and encouraged to win the race despite the challenge um super inspiring you know the race is never over an absolutely amazing performance on his part in case you missed it in addition There was another guy in the race named Guye Adola. He's an Ethiopian. He was actually the bronze medalist two years ago in 2014. Guye Adola lined up right behind Jeffrey Kamroor. And when Jeffrey Kamroor fell down just as the gun fired, uh, of course, Guye Adola did as well. He essentially fell over the top of him. Guye Adola, despite the fact that Jeffrey Kamroor was from the rival nation of Kenya... The Ethiopian, Guye Adola, actually sort of protected uh, Jeffrey Kamwar from getting stepped on extra, then helped him up. Um, an amazing act of sportsmanship on his part. Um, Adola, unfortunately, though, didn't recover from the fall the, as well as Kamwar did, and Adola ended up finishing merely 16th in the race. Um, he obviously ran brilliantly as well, um, but, but he really compromised a lot of his race uh, for that act of sportsmanship, and certainly I thought that deserved some attention. Um, Finally, speaking of inspiration, um, there's a new book calling out, coming out uh, about the guy who inspired me as an athlete and inspired the name of this podcast Emil Zatopek, the brilliant Czech runner who won both the 5,000 and 10,000 and the marathon in the 1952 Olympic Games. A new book called Today We Die a Little by a guy named Richard Asquith. Today We Die a Little is a famous quotation from Emil Zatopek um, that he said at the starting line of the marathon. A uh, good way to to psych at all of your competitors to look at all of them and say, well, gentlemen, today we die a little bit. Um, and then, of course, he went on to beat all of them. Um, one thing that that, that Emil Zatopek has done for me, not only did he inspire me as an athlete, and truly has, um, not only in my approach to the sport, but my approach to, to uh, the attitude around the sport, um, but he was also a very outspoken critic of the communist regime in Czechoslovakia. And specifically, as some of you might be aware if you're students of history, in 1968 they had the so-called Prague Spring. And the Prague Spring was where um, there was a lot of dissidents rose up against the Soviet Union who was controlling and... and uh, puppeting a lot of what was going on in Czechoslovakia at the time, um, and said, we want to have more self-determination. Um, uh, you're being too ruthless towards um, towards the rights of the people. Now, make no mistake, Emil Zatopek was a socialist. He believed in socialism. He had grown up in poverty, and he believed that socialism was, was a, a way of solving a lot of the ills that he had had to deal with his growing up. Um, but he didn't agree with the totalitarian, authoritarian approach that the Soviet Union took during 1968. Um, And when there was a lot of protest there that summer in Wenceslas Square, um, he was at the front of them. At this point, he was a national hero. He was in all the textbooks. There were posters in every school building of Emil Zadopek. And he put all that on the line in order to try and protest um, on behalf of all the Czechoslovakians without voices. Um, the Communist Party and and the Communist Party of the Soviet Union ended up winning the day. They rolled in tanks and and squashed the rebellion and and uh, were able to to re maintain control. And and with that, he uh, Emil Zadopek, ended up giving up a lot of his um, influence inside the society. And so the new book that's coming out today, "We Die a Little," is not only about him as a as a uh, runner, but it's also about him as as a human rights advocate, um, and some of the, uh, the the costs that he paid uh, as a result of standing up for the people who uh, were his countrymen. Uh, there was a piece that appeared uh, just this week that's uh, uh, drawn from that new book, Today We Die a Little, uh, and I'll give the link to the entire piece, but I did want to read one section of it here to, uh, to close out today's podcast here. Um, again, Today We Die a Little by Richard Aswith, quote, he, Emil Zatopek, was expelled from the army and the Communist Party, and his new pariah status made it almost impossible for him to find work. Eventually, he was allowed to become an employee of a drilling company that prospected for water and minerals in remote parts of rural Czechoslovakia. He was part of a small itinerant team, one of whom was usually a secret service informer. They not only worked together, but lived together, sleeping in a shared marangoda or a caravan. Every two or three weeks, they were allowed home for a day or two. The exile lasted for four and a half years. Zatopek's name was erased from textbooks. His use as a propaganda icon ceased abruptly. He could cope with the physical hardship, but the exile and disgrace hurt him deeply. His marriage suffered. He drank heavily. Once, near the village of Limetzal, a local woman sent her son to present him with a small gift, a piece of smoked meat. The boy was shocked by the disheveled figure who opened the door. I am not the Zatopek that you used to know, confessed Emil, bottle in hand. Another time, his wife Dana drove an old friend, the Spanish sports official Pax de Alcorda, to visit Emil in a remote site near Javala. The two men embraced, Emil still in the overalls in which he often slept as well as worked. On the journey back, Alcorda wept. Is this how they treat their hero? Eventually, after a series of public capitulations to the regime for which the dissident movement never forgave him, Emil was allowed to return to Prague. But the communists never forgave him either. He was still a traitor to the Soviet cause. His memory languished even when he was officially rehabilitated after the Velvet Revolution of 1989. Among a hard core of runners around the world, he has remained a kind of patron saint of their sports. But the Czechs and the Slovaks had largely lost their enthusiasm for him. There was a flurry of attention on his death in November 2000. Since then, his fame has continued to fade. Yet now, belatedly, the Czech sporting establishment is embracing its national hero. Every Czech athlete at this summer's Olympics in Rio will have a special Zotopec symbol on their vest. It is an overdue gesture to an athlete who not only made his country famous, but did so with a friendliness that, in the words of the Australian coach Percy Cerruti, made it to seem preposterous that we should ever be required to hate each other. A runner must run with dreams in his heart, not money in his pocket, Zadupek is supposed to have said. We could all do with a few more athletes like him today. I agree. And there you have it. Thanks for joining us once again. Please don't forget to follow us at Pleasant Podcast on Twitter, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast, and of course on our blog at mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com. Don't forget we're on iTunes. Please go on there, write us a review, and subscribe. You can follow ITL Coaching at ITL Coaching on Twitter, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance, and online at ITLCoaching.com. I wrote a new blog post and was just published today on ITLCoaching.com. Check that out. Don't forget also, if you need help traveling to your next event, uh, be sure to look up my wife. Drop me a line if you need her information, but you can find her on Facebook at facebook.com slash Casey Travel Planner, M-E-V, or Casey, that's K-A-C-I-E at U-G-A dot E-D-U. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.